Hi everyone, I'm Lottie Bowser and you're listening to Lemonade, the podcast that amplifies extraordinary stories of adversity, courage and resilience so that you too can be reminded of your power. Every fortnight, a guest reveals the defining moments that have shaped their lives and the insights and tools they have learned that have helped them to thrive in the wake of their challenges. Season one is packed with incredible people, from activists to comedians, athletes and authors. Don't forget to hit the follow button to be the first to know about every new episode and leave us a review if you like what you hear. Liv, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Hello. Thank you. Hi, thank you so much for joining me. No problem. How are you doing? I was just saying, I'm really cold. <laughs> but other than that, I'm kind of fine. I'm wading through the school holidays and juggling what that means of juggling childcare and life and jobs and la la. But you know, it's fine. Right. It's really hardcore. Yeah. I often think that motherhood, parenthood really, is, is, is one of the hardest jobs, if not the hardest job in the world. Oh, yeah, I, I have no doubt. And also you, people whinge about parenting a lot, and I get it because it is wild. <laughs> <laughs> wild. But also you can't ever realise how wild it is until you're in it Mm. like I'd planned to get pregnant for so long and all of that kind of thing that I thought I'd covered everything in my head like logistics and but actually all I was thinking of was nice beach trips and playing with my kids and the streams and you know all that stuff I've forgotten about actual day-to-day madness of it yeah the drudgery I was actually going to ask you what what the kind of expectations were versus the reality. It, it must be one of those things that you, yeah, you just really don't know until you're in it yourself. Yeah, but that's like anything in life. You plan it and plan it and plan it until you're in it. You've no idea what it's actually going to be like, like what all the nuances are going to be and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it is, parenthood is a constant cliche, like, the ups are, the highs are really high, the lows are really low, um, but most of the time you're sort of cruising along in the middle, mm. trying to get through. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about the shit bits and the difficult bits as well, yeah. right? But I think there's a lot, I think people didn't talk about it for such a long time. Now we talk about it so much that I think we are in slight danger of remembering there are some beautiful bits as well. Do you know what I mean? I think we've got a, yeah. Yeah. Just, it, it encompasses, it's like life. Like it encompasses all the things all the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think people didn't, well, not didn't. I think maybe just there wasn't such an easy platform to vocalise how hard parenting is. And now social media allows people or you to find people who find certain things tough like you do or who love certain things like, you you know. Um, and so sometimes you can be in a bit of an echo chamber of, oh, my God, this is really hard. Yeah, there's a constant duality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So do you have to remind myself that actually it's bloody lovely too? Yeah, yeah. It's not one thing or another, this or that, you know, it's it's the whole all of the shades all of the shades yeah yeah 
Well, Liv, your your journey to parenthood has been rather unique. And I was just blown away listening to you speak firstly on a couple of podcasts, actually, and then reading more about your story on Instagram. And I'd love to firstly go back in time to, I think, to your mid-30s, which is when your journey began. Is that right? Yeah. So I have a, a five-year-old son via anonymous sperm donor. And my journey, for want of a better word, uh, into parenthood started when I was about 36. Um, but actually, I'd wanted to be a mum since I was kind of 13. I've spoken to many mums now who were just like, I did not have that maternal gene until either they got pregnant or they were 35 and suddenly they were like, oh God, no, I do want a baby. Whereas I'd always wanted, it had always been there. And that was the kind of narrative I grew up with in my head of, well, I'll get married and we'll have beautiful babies and everything will be glorious. But as it happens, weirdly, as ever, life didn't quite turn out like that. And yes, yeah, so I'd been single my entire adult life, really, and found myself at 36, suddenly very aware of my maternal clock. Because whilst women do have children later nowadays, um, there is, we do have biological uh, constraints on that and that that is just fact and I was terrified that I'd never become a mum and like my friends would get pregnant and I would never feel pleased for them um, I'd always just want to cry or I'd feel really jealous I'd always feel really kind of mean thoughts and after a while you just like live that's not okay to live your life like that and so yeah that's when I was just like I've got to just take the ball by the horns. So, yeah, I went down the sperm donor route. I think, um, firstly, what you felt, I feel, was incredibly, well, I, I just think it's incredibly valid. And I definitely struggled with those sorts of feelings myself. About parenthood or people being happy in relationships? Kind of all of it. Both, yeah. I can imagine. Mm, engagements, um, weddings, babies, you know, everybody having what you want, but yeah. don't or either can't have. And there's a misconception around grief that you can't grieve for something that you don't have, right? But actually what but I... But I think you can. You can. I think that, yeah, I, I really think you can. And I think that that kind of grief that you were talking about of the life you thought you'd have with your partner and seeing that in other people and the problem, quote unquote, with it being about marriage or relationships or babies is that as a society, we constantly celebrate love, which isn't a bad thing, but you have engagement parties and then you have a hen do or stag do or whatever, and then you have a wedding and then there's a christening and then there's a la 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 la. And all of these things. And if you're not, if you don't feel part of that, there's a brief period of your time where that's happening 
to everyone you know, that the isolation is wild. And you do end up having to grieve a little bit about the life you thought you'd have or you assumed you'd have or you wanted to have that isn't happening for you. And for me, that was mainly about motherhood. But of course, there were elements of it that were um, not having a partner as well. Mm. Um, but but my need to be a mum kind of trumped that, that wanting to have a partner or needing to be a partner. Mm. Liv, how do you think you managed to reconcile with the fact that your journey into parenthood would look different to perhaps what you'd expected it to or hoped it would look like? Uh, that's so interesting. I think because I wanted it so badly mm. that actually all of the grief that I'd felt about what my life wasn't, I was trying to put behind me because I could see what my life was going to be. So the reconciliation of that was the fact that I was making what I wanted happen happen. Um, or I was hoping it would happen. Luckily it did happen. But, uh, you know, I sort of set sail on the good ship fertility, hopeful. And, you know, like I, I can't keep living in this story where this is the end. I've got a, um, I've got to write a new bit that happens to be slightly different. And I think that's how I reconciled it was the excitement of the future, never having to feel that ache again, or, you know, to me far outweighed and still does far outweighs any feelings of all oh, my life isn't quite the same as everybody else's. Um, yeah. Cause half the time I don't want my life to be the same as everyone else's. Oh no. The bit I wanted to be was the mother. I wanted to be a mother like everyone else or everyone else might, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the ultimate example of like the reclamation of your power. Do you know what I mean? Because there's things that happen that are beyond our control, but what you've done in choosing to pursue this on your own is it's, it's taking it into your own hands, you know, and recognizing yeah. that you do have a choice. And while certain pieces of the puzzle perhaps aren't available to you, or at least they weren't in the moment, you made it happen. Yeah, no, I do think there's something very empowering about that. And that's not to say I wouldn't have loved to have done it the quote unquote normal way. Um, at all. I, I, I've never shunned that. It's just that isn't how my life was panning out um, because I'd never been in a relationship. So you can't suddenly at 37 start going on dates and being like, oh, yeah, and by the way, I need a baby tomorrow. Lots of love. I'm pretending it was about being in a relationship rather than being a mum, like, because it wasn't. Yeah. Well, it's just choosing, you know, it's... It's doing things in a different order, right? Who's to say you won't be in a relationship at some point? One day. Yeah, absolutely. But Liv, I know it's, there's context to this though, right? Yeah. You, it, it's, it's very layered. I heard you on um, the Blended podcast hosted by Kate Ferdinand. Um, I heard you talking about your teenage years and the profound losses that you endured and how yeah. that 
really impacted your relationships, your romantic relationships? Yeah, massively. Yeah. So I lost my dad when I, I don't know. I hate that expression. I don't know why I use it. I didn't lose him. He died when I was 12. Um, and my mum when I was 17. And they both died of, um, well, my dad died of asbestos poisoning and my mum died of secondary breast cancer. So they weren't shock deaths. Um, but so from the age of seven or eight, I think I was, when my mum was first diagnosed, they'd been in the house dying, as it were. There was a bit of, there was a, a brief respite just after dad died. When mum, when mum was clear for a few years but then so for 10 years of my life it was there was always someone very unwell in the house talking about death all the time and yet they weren't talking about death to me because I was so young not that they didn't say what was happening or the gravity of it but I think they would definitely have chosen what to tell me um understandably yeah uh so yeah by the time I was 17 I was orphaned um and then sort of within five years of that my grandparents had died so I had no grandparents no parents I'd had my first love and the heartbreak that that brings even though it it was a mad first love like they always are they you know just a bit bonkers looking back now it's like oh my god that was very cute um but at the time heartbreaking mm. and again then my next relationship again I I put everything into this guy because I hadn't nowhere else for everything to go um and when we split up it was the absolute straw that broke the camel's back that I was never ever going to put myself into a position where I'd be hurt again, where I could feel those, that depths of what was clearly grief, but that I, at that age, hadn't, hadn't worked that out, that heartbreak would scratch the surface of the grief that I'd been trying to conceal. And it wasn't actually until I started writing my book when I was 42, something like that, um, that I was like, oh my God, I I did this to myself. You know, my fear of abandonment was so huge that I never went on a second date mm. or men would be, you know, they'd be really nice. But I'd be like, oh yeah, but he's got short hair or big hands or I mean just anything ridiculous that would mean that I'd be like so I can't possibly you know I can't possibly put myself out there for him um but actually it was just me going no you're okay if I yeah. if I let myself if that if I let that happen then I'll get heartbroken again and I cannot deal with that mm-hmm. I think the um the sort of ramifications of profound loss and in in your case losses don't really reveal themselves until years later no and especially as I was so young when it happened so I I would have made so many um kind of allowances and formed my opinions on things based on things I had to do um 
you know, and so I told every, uh, my mum's hospice where she died, I said to my sister, when again, when I was writing the book, like, did I have counselling? Did anyone offer this sad young girl who was pretending everything was fine counselling? And she was like, yeah, Liv, of course they did, but you managed to convince them you were okay. And that is just so me. Liv, I, I just, before we go any further, I just want to acknowledge what you've shared and the enormity of what you've been through and to say that I'm so sorry. Thank you. It doesn't matter how many... Oh, God, don't <laughs> cry. <laughs> don't say things like that. Sorry. Bless you. <laughs> but that's another thing with with grief. Mm. Um, is that it's always there, isn't it? It's always, always just... Damn, um, someone could say one thing mm. and you'll be like, oh, no, I've gone again. And that's what my life's like all the time. People can say anything. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'm crying. And you've asked me if I want a cup of tea. And you know, that kind of, oh, God, because it's always just there. Mm. Yeah, of course it is. Completely um, bubbling, waiting. You never need to apologise, you know, for ex- expressing a very, very normal... No, thank you. <laughs> for being a weepy old woman. Oh, I cry at I everything. very weepy. Yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> exactly, because it's always there. It's always there. It's always there. just waiting to sort of go, hiya, don't forget. Totally. And it's the um, seemingly ordinary instance instances, right, where... Oh, it can just yeah hit you and um and take you out again but you know just circling back to what we were saying in regards to grieving for what you haven't had there's so much there having gone through the majority of your life without your parents that you have had to kind of come to terms with you know and so uh, yeah I get so I still get so jealous of people's relationships with their parents of course you like, do oh my god or like um if they're like oh god my mum won't stop calling you're like fuck mm-hmm. off take the call she's probably just trying to help or she wants to come around and do the washing exactly but that's the other thing is I really romanticise people's relationships with their parents. <laughs> I'm like, but surely they're lovely. Um, whereas no doubt if mum and dad were alive, they'd be driving me nuts too and I'd be driving them, you know. But when you don't have it, you totally romanticise what that relationship would be like. Um, well, look, let's not underestimate just how horrendous what you've been through oh, yeah. is not ideal far from ideal undermine is the word mm. i'm looking for yeah yeah far, far, far from ideal far from ideal yeah but live you you are the definition of making lemonade with the lemons right yeah skipping ahead a little bit i wondered if you could share a little bit more about sperm donation and IUI because as you rightly pointed out in your conversation with Kate it's not really something that's spoken about there's still quite a lot of stigma around it and your mission is to change that right by having these types of conversations it's not so much to change the stigma around it so much as I think I want people who are in a position I was in five, six years ago when I decided to go ahead to find 
just normal people who are also looking to become, or in my instance, a mum. And and that it isn't all 2.4 children on white picket fences. It just isn't anymore. Um, And there are other routes to parenthood. Uh, and and if that's what you want, you've got to try and and do that and get there by any way you can. And for me, that was sperm donation. But equally, that is a bloody privileged position for me to be in. Like, it's really expensive. It's, I mean, I didn't look, but I, I know that had I have had different coloured skin, finding a, a donor with the same skin colour to me that would have been limited, um, things like that, that for me, I didn't have to think about, but other people would have had to have done. Um, I have to remember that I was just so fucking lucky. Um, yeah, there's been loads of rubbish in my life, but but that all seemed, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky that I could afford, well, I couldn't afford to do it, but I could access money to do it. And that I didn't have fertility issues um, because actually had I have had fertility issues, the, the getting pregnant would have, again, been really traumatic. And I've seen friends go through so much trauma trying to get pregnant. Whereas for me... IUI is simply they inject the sperm into your cervix. There's no, well, natural IUI is, which is what I did. So there's no hormone therapy. There's um, no invasive taking out eggs or things that happen with IVF that's really invasive um, because I was really convinced that I didn't have any fertility issues, that my issue was that I was single. So I wanted to try the least invasive and least expensive options possible before I went to IVF. Um, and, and luckily, after four rounds, that worked for me. But that's really lucky. Like, that's like having sex four times in a normal heterosexual relationship. And that's to get pregnant on your fourth go is bloody lucky. So um, while some of it is shit... I'm never knowingly not appreciative of how easy my fertility journey was. Well, I'm glad about that because, you know, after all the shit you've <laughs> Me been too. through. So it's my, it's my bank manager. <laughs> well, and that, right, because I'd imagine you can only afford to do it, you know, X number of times. A certain amount of times before you have to find funds other places or, yeah, yeah. Mm. And Liv, how do you um, how do you source a, a sperm donor? Was it a relatively straightforward process, or uh, yes and no? It, I went for a um, Danish sperm bank. I, I can't give you good reason as to why, other than we don't have a national sperm bank in the UK. We did for a while, but we didn't get enough donors, so it closed. Um, You can still access um, sperm in the UK, but to me, I mean, this is where it's ridiculous. There wasn't enough choice for me, yet I had no idea what I was looking for. 
and too much joy seemed mad. So again, I can't give good reason as to why I chose Danish Spurbank, um, but I did. And uh, and then the, the process itself is relatively simple. It is a filtering system of various taxonomies on a website. So height, weight, eye colour, blood type, all of these sort of things, skin colour, and then you filter it down. So that's physically relatively simple. But mm. what the hell are you looking for? Like, <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't really know. It wasn't a dating site. So you can't, you know, it's it's really odd in the fact that, yeah, it is easy to do. But the, it's so difficult to make those choices because... What are you looking for? What? And there's no right answer. You don't suddenly filter it down and then there's one at the bottom that comes out of a gold box. Mm. You just add it to a basket to pay for it, but you've no idea. Oh, my God. If that's – you've just no idea. It's a lottery. Um, Did you see a photo? Could you look through photos? Yeah, or? there's – depending on what sperm bank you use is dependent on what information you get. I got a photo of the donor as a baby. Mm. So it's vaguely pointless because babies also look the same. Yeah. yeah, I did get a photo. It didn't mean anything. But you get a lot of information like um, what's their favourite childhood memory? What's their favourite colour? What was their favourite book? You know, things like that. That again, entirely irrelevant because <laughs> that's not that's not genetic. Um, but equally, you've kind of got to pick something. So I heard that your you you wanted to ensure that the donor had um, a fairly what's the word to use like a sort of positive medical history in his yes, family, yeah, yeah, which exactly. makes a lot of sense. So initially I was like, oh, God, he doesn't like dogs. How awful. I don't like him. Um, <laughs> as if I was going on a date with him. Until I was like, Liv, what are you doing? It's like, it doesn't matter if he doesn't like ACDC or, you know, because that's not going to be passed down. What matters is, does he have good genetic history? Because your familial genetic history is shit. So I needed someone to try and weigh it out the other end. Um, and they're heavily screened before they can be a donor. So it's not as if someone with anything that they could pass down would be allowed to be a donor. But equally, I was just sort of looking for, I don't know, what I was looking for anything to try and whittle it down to... A, a donor that would give me the thing that I wanted most in the world. Um, so yeah, after after looking at it like a dating site and then realising that was a really stupid thing to do, <laughs> I started looking at it more medically until I found one that was seemed seemed good. But again, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> In terms of the logistics, so the the sperm bank, I'm assuming, was based in Denmark. You obviously have to then transport the sperm to the UK where you receive the IUI treatment. Yeah, so you, I mean, you can have the treatment out in Denmark. 
or you get it shipped to your clinic in the UK. But but you have to ensure that your clinic accepts donors from the sperm bank that you've chosen because some don't. Uh, they, I mean, I cannot think of good reasons for that to be the case other than business. So um, it is an industry. The fertility industry is an industry. So Of course. They will make you make decisions every step of the way and charge you for them. So. But I get it. It's lives. You're creating lives. So it has got to be obviously really official and all that kind of thing. But But I think they, yeah. There's a lot of business happening. Yeah, absolutely. Liv, you you also mentioned in one of the podcasts I listened to that your donor is an open donor. I wondered um, if you could explain what that means for any listeners who haven't heard of that term. So it means that, um, and in the UK, they can only be open donors now. They have to be able to be... Um, contactable basically so when my son is 18 he has the ability to contact his donor should he wish to Um, and it was really important for me to have an open donor because I'm gonna make a shitload of decisions (laughs) for my son during his life but that one needs to be his and I didn't want it to be something that wasn't an option if I'd chosen a donor that was totally anonymous um, but the legalities of that are very dependent on country. But I think, don't quote me, I'm really bad on stats, but I'm pretty sure that all of Europe, um, it's now not legal to be anon- entirely anonymous. Um, but yeah, it will always be when the, the child is 18, I think, 16 or 18, again, dependent. But you've had no contact with the donor directly? No, I never would. Um, okay. And well, unless Herb gets in contact with him when he's eighteen, and then he wants to mm. introduce me to him. No, I, I have no idea. I don't even know where he lives. I presume Denmark, but, but who knows? Yeah. Liv, how do you navigate conversations with Herb about his father? Um. Firstly, it's not his father, so it's always his donor. So I don't use words like that because. That's really confusing to him. If of course, sorry, yeah. No, yeah. no, no, don't apologise. As in that, it's just linguistics. But, but words like dad or father would make him feel that he is looking for someone. But actually, so he knows he doesn't have a dad. He has a donor. Mm, that makes so much sense now that you said it. Yeah, and again, when I read that when I was pregnant, I was like, "Oh God, of course, you know." And and again, it depends. There are a lot of people who don't like that term or that way of thinking. It's really personal about how, yeah. obviously, about how. But to me, he doesn't have. It's not even a, that he has a biological dad. He he. To me, it's a donor, um, because I don't know him. He was, he's a total hero to me. Don't get me wrong. I think the man's incredible, but I don't know him. So he's not Herb's dad. He is his donor. And I've just talked openly to Herb about it throughout his life. So it's never been shrouded in secrecy or, um, and I just changed the wording. The older he gets, the more he can understand um 
because I never want him to feel like he's a dirty little secret or, you know, that how he was conceived is. So I, this could go one way or the other for how it transpires when he's older, but I tell everyone because I don't ever want someone to be with us and go, you're a donor kit, you know, as if they've just discovered an exciting secret. Do you know know what people are like? So, yeah, I talk about it all the time in the playground, whatever, because I I feel like if he, the more he hears it and the more other people hear it, like his friends at school and that kind of thing. Um, And he does have days where he's like, why don't I have a dad? And I explain it to him. He's like, okay, cool, but I've got you. I'm like, yeah, baby, you have. And actually one parent can make up for two, you know. That's not to say it's not twice as hard. Yeah, and and it's not to say that there are kids who have, yeah, who have a mum and a dad have a great relationship with their mum and or dad or, you know, because that's how, again, how life is. What even constitutes as normal. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, of course, to have two loving parents and daffodils growing in the front garden and all that sort of stuff and no one to ever have to worry about anything sounds glorious. However... That isn't how my life panned out. And and I think in some respects, me not having parents is easier for him to un, not understand. But like, I don't have a dad. He doesn't have a dad. So when it comes around to Father's Day, it's not like I'm celebrating my dad. He's not celebrating his dad. We're not. It's just Father's Day. Um, and this year it did come up that Father's Day was a not an issue, but he acknowledged it this year because for the first time ever in class at school, all of his friends were talking about their dads all at the same time. Whereas obviously normally you talk about a parent maybe once a day or one kid will, but but it's never your whole yeah. peer group. Um, and I think that blew his mind a little bit, but he didn't seem sad so much as intrigued that, no one else didn't have a dad. Um, but that's fine. It just means next year I work that out with our teachers that yeah, maybe we don't all talk about it all at the same time and we can use other words or, you know. Um, but, yeah, he I talk to him about it really openly. I don't hide anything from him um, because I just don't think that breeds good cons or trust or... Yeah, I agree. And, and we tend to, you know, there's this sort of narrative that, and absolutely children ought to be protected, you know, but in in the same way that we hide death from children, I don't think that that's necessarily helpful either. I quite strongly agree. Right, because you've experienced that firsthand yeah, 100%. And and people not telling me things I should have known and that kind of thing. Um, and again, it's easy to say now that I'm this side of it, that I think some of those decisions were wrong. But had I have known everything, would that have worked out well, you know? But I do think that uh, including children in those conversations is wildly important. Like I talk to her about death all the time, not in a weird way, just, oh, so-and-so's granddad died. Do you know what that means? Or like our dog died. Oh, God, I can't talk about him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
S-A-R, mine. Herb didn't give a shit about him at all. <laughs> My dog died at 14. Oh, Liv. And so to Herb, that was very real because he suddenly wasn't in the house anymore. But like I say, Herb loved that because actually, actually Elvis um, stole my attention from him. Right. So he was not pleased that Elvis died, but he wasn't sad about it. Yeah. But he saw me be sad, uh, you know, so there were loads of discussions about death and sadness and that kind of thing then. Um, and I'd never have tried to have hidden that from him because that, I, I don't know what that would have achieved for him not to know that the dog died and he's now not here and he's, you know, wherever he wants him to be. Um, he thinks heavens, so that's cool. He's in this thing called heaven. Yeah. Um, and then there's the questions of what is heaven? And I'm like, Whoa! <laughs> Uh, whatever you want it to be, ah, you know, because they're the they're the questions I find harder to answer than where's my dad, because <laughs> that to me is really like straight down the line. Um, where's heaven and those kind of concepts? You're like, oh god, uh, that I find much harder to navigate than than how he was conceived. Much harder. What do you say, or should we not go there? Heaven. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd just say things like it's wherever you want the people you love, where you want to think about them being, that they're happy. Um, and that some people think that's in the sky and some people think it's a, a very specific place, or but it's wherever you want. And he's very generic about it and thinks it's somewhere in the sky. And Because, again, that's what happens in films and all that sort of stuff. And that's cool. That's fine for me it means I know what he understands and how he feels Mm. it and we talk about it like that that's really beautiful I think it's important to recognize children's sense of agency and um emotional awareness and yeah and also to not for them I don't want him to suddenly be 18 and not have felt any of these things or realised that any of this actual, real, true life stuff happens all the time. Um, and again, I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm, I'm just a mum. I will fuck <laughs> up like every other mum. And and he will turn around to me one day and go, I wish I was never born. Like, I hate you, mum. <laughs> I hate you. Yeah, all of that. And I know it's coming and mm. whatever. I'll deal with it when it comes. But I just... With things, with the big things like that, I don't ever want him to suddenly be shocked by it. Like, what if someone in our family died? Or I don't want him to not understand or have ever spoken about death or before, if that happened. Um, I want him to have some kind of level of minimum, but understanding of what that means to him as a five-year-old and then as six, eight, ten, twelve, whatever. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, it probably does more harm in the long run to shield people from these kinds of things. Yeah, because but who knows? But, but to me, that's, that's how I am dealing with it. <laughs> yeah. It's by just telling him the truth about, or the truth in terms he'll understand, obviously not the cold, hard truth. Yeah. 
Um, but in terms of understanding, we have books about death and that kind of thing. Again, not in a really morbid way. I don't sit down on a Wednesday and go, oh, Wednesday's death day. I'll speak to him about, you know, get the death <laughs> books out. But it's just like, like I make sure there's books about race in his library. I make sure there's books about different family setups in his library. I make sure I make sure death is part of that literature too, because it is something that happens. Yeah, it's not, you know, I'd go as far as to say it's, not morbid you know it's not it's not this sort of dark obviously it's a very painful subject because of the nature of losing people that we love but like you said it happens it happens and and like again there are stories about love in there and all this you know I just want him to have a picture of life that isn't just all you know rainbows and tween birds yeah the entirety of the human experience and all its shades, as we said earlier. To finish our conversation today, if you had, and I know it's so subjective. And, oh, God, I'm already terrified about uh, what this question's going to be. It's going to be well, I've got a couple of questions, actually. <laughs> so the, the first thing is, do, do you have any, and, and you can take a moment to think about this, um, do you have any nuggets of wisdom or any advice that you would like to share with anybody listening who might be navigating solo parenthood as well, whether it be because you know perhaps they've lost a partner or because they've decided to embark on this journey on their own? Advice. The one bit of advice I can give to anyone, whether solo by choice or solo through grief, or there are no right answers to any of it ever. And you'll never know if it's right or wrong anyway. And that goes down to what to give them for tea, to where to send them to school, to whether you should send them to beavers or teach them Spanish or... There's no, he'll be a better person if I send him to Cubs and teach him Spanish. There's no, there is no right or wrong answer. You've just got to do what you feel is right at the time. And as we said earlier, they will come back and bite you in the ass at some stage anyway. (laughs) You've just got to know that when he does turn around to me and say, I hate you, I'll be like, cool, thanks. I did all these things, X, Y, and Z with the very best intentions. I don't know what's right. You don't know what's right. Don't worry about it. Let's just try and muddle along. That is my only bit of advice for any parent ever, is there are no right answers ever for any of it. Oh, and if there are, Jesus Christ, if someone knows the right answers to any of it, including what should I feed my kid for tea tonight, please let me know. I would be thrilled. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) we're all just trying our best aren't we god with the information that we have as well exactly (laughs) totally live yeah thank you for that i think that's really and that actually applies you know i'm not a parent but i'm like yeah i it does apply to everything it it applies to everything it really does yeah and the the quicker i worked that out Mm -hmm. um is when i was like yeah fine okay i've just got to cruise through got to cruise through yeah exactly i think we're all just winging it really aren't we <laughs> i know it's the people that pretend they aren't that i don't trust bullshit like, mm, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, how are you so put together mm-hmm. 
And Liv, what about the younger version of you? If there's anything that you could say to her, what would it be? Save all your money. Like not even anything romantical or beautiful or just entirely practical. Don't ever buy a coffee again. Oh my God. I am. Um, I just listened to a brilliant book actually um, on Audible. It's called, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. It's not rich in, you know, the sense of lots of material possessions, unless of course that is your version of a rich life. And he, he encourages everybody to spend some time thinking about what, you know, your definition of rich is. And does he say don't buy coffee? Uh, he says that he, he, he's like, be really aggressive in terms of cutting back on the things that you don't care about, but he wants his listeners, his readers, etc., to spend extravagantly on the things that they love. Um, and there's lots of good hacks. You see, that's so sensible. That is the opposite of me. I spend money on absolutely Shit. tosh. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Oh, I better have that just in case. Mm. As if I live in a third world country where I can't access things that I'll need for her yeah. at any time, just in case. Oh my God. So that is my advice would be save her all your money. Listen to that podcast that you've just spoken about and do that and not whatever I do with money. Amazing. Well, Liv, thank you so much. It's been You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. No, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, to learn more about your story. And it's very inspiring to me. And I'm sure many of my listeners will find it inspiring too. I don't feel very inspiring when, when I'm, you know, knee deep in washing and ferrying kids around. But, you know, I'm, so I'm glad it does sound it. Yeah, no, well, but that's it though, isn't it? It's like, it is difficult. And I think being able to just speak candidly about that is really important. 